From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Coots. Hi everyone, it's Connie Coots, and you are listening to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. Author Dan Klefstad is back with us to share the second chapter of his novel in progress, The Guardian. Hi Dan. Hello, it's nice to be here again. Oh, it's great to see you. Now, after Dan shares this chapter, we're going to talk a little bit with him about him. But before that, we are going to set the scene for you. The title is The Interview, and the year is? Uh, so this is uh, Modern Times, 2017. Okay, and tell us about the setting. Setting is in a small university town. I guess many people will probably think, oh, it's DeKalb, uh, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we have uh, a character who is not named until the very end. Uh, it is told through his point of view, so mm-hmm. this is our protagonist, who is a college student who has uh, decided to leave school. Mm-hmm. And we also have Fiona, who is our vulnerable heroine, who is also a... Well, she kind of, she can appear vulnerable, but she's a vampire, so there's very little in the way of vulnerability. I mean, if she wants to rip your head off, she will, because she has that ability. (laughs) And that's true. (laughs) And we have Daniel and Wolford. Right. We find out that the the protagonist uh, is given the name Wolford, which is shortened to Wolf. Okay. And that's not a spoiler or anything. Okay, that's fine. Just... But, but, right, yeah. but he doesn't have a name because I didn't think he needed one until the end, which was really interesting. And suddenly I felt like, okay, if his story is going to continue, he has to have a name. Okay. And so I thought it was more interesting to have a name put upon him. Okay. That's wonderful. So there's three characters in here. You know their names. You know how to get ready. Remember, this was written by an adult for adults, and this podcast is and always will be for adults. I fantasize about her every morning in the shower. I wait until after dawn when I know she's home asleep. Where does she go at night? Eyes closed, I replay the image of her long, bare back. Then I pull her close, hike up her dress, and take her from behind. Grabbing her hips, I pull hard and watch her head bob and hair fly, enjoying total control. But it never lasts more than a few seconds before her head turns Her mouth opens, and the whole thing unravels. It's not what you think. Better start at the beginning, which is a month ago. My fantasies involve girl friends who gained 35 pounds since freshman year. Not me. I have high metabolism and low liquidity, which means I'm starving on my daily ration of ramen. The state of Illinois failed to fund tuition grants again, and midway through my third year, the university stopped fronting cash. Reserves are dry, they said. Well, so are mine. I upload my resume at a handful of job sites, but it's not long before everyone says no thanks because I lack a degree. The only hit comes from someone named Daniel. No last name, no company logo, just Daniel and a Gmail. I send him a simple question. What kind of job is this anyway? There's just one objective, to serve our employer. 
our employer. Will you be my supervisor? I'll retire after I train you. Until you're ready to take over, I remain in service. In service? Where are you, Downton Abbey? Daniel cuts to the chase. The salary has eight figures. Then an ultimatum. The more you read, the more my employer will consider you a threat if you decline our offer. If you have no intentions of taking this job, delete this message now before reading further. This is followed by several empty spaces. Then, this is your final warning. Turn back if you'd rather not devote every day of your prime years to one employer who demands utter secrecy and loyalty. Take a moment to reflect on which is more important, a career that allows for family and vacations or a mogul's retirement. As an aside, he says he's drinking some vintage wine given by our employer, one of the last of its kind in the world, but I'm focused on those eight figures, which I only half believe until he says $10 million. Okay, my fingers move quickly. I'm in. Seconds go by that seem like minutes. Then, our employer is displeased that you don't own a suit. Borrow one, plus silk neckwear, and learn to tie an eldridge knot. Your wingtips are fine, but they need polishing. Get a haircut, and tell your barber you want a shave. Under no circumstances are you to shave yourself. The next cut beneath your Adam's apple could be your last. She's smiling as she says this, but I wouldn't call it a joke. See you next Thursday, just before midnight, upstairs at the Blarney Pub. sure seemed like Blarney, but how would a prankster know what's in my closet or that I shave badly? Maybe a hacker peered through my laptop or phone, which makes me wonder if I'm interviewing with a spy agency or Edward Snowden. A Russian mobster? Whoever it is probably doesn't live in a small college town, so I'm feeling important as I enter the pub and climb to the second floor. Daniel told me about the black fedora, but not the dangling sleeve. I like a man who arrives early. He extends his left hand, confidently waiting for me to approach. I forgot what real shoes sound like. The room echoes with wood heels hitting old planks. Daniel's hand is warm and dry. He indicates his head toward a wooden table with two empty chairs. I told the house to leave us alone, but we can have a drink later. His smile disappears as he asks for my phone. For security. I take it out, but keep it at my side. Daniel keeps his gaze locked on mine. You didn't tell anyone where you were going tonight, as I instructed? I straighten. I'd rather not answer. How's that? For all I know, this could be an ambush. Not answering is the only protection I have. Daniel's eyes narrow. Listen carefully. You won't leave this room unless we're satisfied with your answer. Are you armed? I look around us. I have two to your one, so yeah, better armed than you. Laughter erupts from my right. I turn and see a woman in a slender black dress, hand over her mouth, sitting in one of the chairs. She lets me glance at her plunging neckline before looking dead at me. He didn't tell anyone. This is Fiona.
Daniel gives a slight bow in her direction. Then he takes my phone and walks toward the door. Meet me downstairs. An empty chair beckons, but I hesitate, sensing something I've never felt before. Vibration isn't the word. Nothing emanates from her. Instead, I'm like a chunk of debris floating toward a black hole. My steps ring in my ears as I near the table and pull the chair. The scraping legs sound like a child being murdered. I consider offering my hand, but her nails are shaped like hawk's beaks, clearing my throat. I appreciate you taking the time to discuss this opportunity with me, but I'm disturbed that you've been spying on me. Dimples form as her mouth curves upward. Do you work for the feds? She shakes her head. Police? She frowns, examining her nails, and I wonder if this suddenly bored woman will rip my face off. Are you in business? I'm in the business, she rises, of surviving. As her dress glides toward the unmanned bar, I stare at her exposed back. The dress pools around her feet so I can't see them. The floorboards are silent beneath her. She glides back sets down a glass, and reaches down between her breasts. A flask appears, and she fills the glass with a red liquid that's way thicker than wine. She swirls, sniffs, and swallows. Briefly, she opens her mouth, exposing stalactites on either side of her tongue. Bang! The chair hits the floor. Who? What are you? She offers me the glass. I sniff. Horrified, I let it fall, but hear no crash. It's in her hand again, singing softly as her finger mops up inside. This. Her eyes burn through me as her lips envelop her finger. Is it human? Bored again, looking at her nails. I'm tingling as my blood tries to bust out through my face. Are you a... That's not an eldritch knot. My hand reaches for my throat, but I'm distracted by her accent, which isn't American and not quite English. I'm sweating as I stare, and this time she doesn't look bored. She stares right back, daring me to say or do the wrong thing. Finally, I find my voice. Will I have to kill anyone? Not if you do your job right. Will I bring victims to you? Her eyes aim briefly at the door. Go talk to Daniel. I glance at the door. When I turn back, she's gone. Each order is always the same. Daniel slides a 50 toward the bartender and waves him off. Ten pints of O-negative. That's how much she needs every night. He swallows some scotch. I have people at hospitals and blood banks. Chicago, Rockford, Madison, even St. Louis. That's five hours away. I down my bourbon in one swallow. Throat burning, I push the glass back to the bartender who refills it. St. Louis is the backup for when hang-ups occur. Hang-ups? 
the supply occasionally gets interrupted. All it takes is one train crash or explosion, and our bags get sent to the ER. Other times, he shrugs, someone forgets. I grab my fresh drink. How do we pay for all that bl- Those pints? Daniel's voice drowns me out as he shoots me a look. You invest her money. Then he swirls the dark, heavy liquid under his nose before sipping. Lately, we're staying away from tech stocks. New administration playing it safe. We're in toothpaste, deodorant, stuff people use every day. So they smell good if we experience a hang-up? Very funny. Tell me, how often will I disappear, people? You won't have to if you're doing my job. She said that already. I aim my finger at his face. He gently but firmly pushes it aside. I lean in. How many times did you have to kill for her? He ignores me. Frustrated, I down the rest of my drink. Slow down. That's expensive. Daniel sniffs his. This is a lonely job, one where you're constantly on duty. Expensive liquor is one of the few things that makes it tolerable. Ignoring him, I catch the bartender's attention. Hey, do you believe in vampires? Daniel eyes me carefully, but the barkeep is right on time. I got a wife, two kids, two car payments, student loans, and a cat with panic disorder. The whole world is sucking me dry. Well, have I got an opportunity for you. Daniel slaps another 50 on the counter, grabs me by the collar, and hauls me toward the exit. Wow, pretty good for one arm. I have marbles in my mouth. Outside, Daniel shoves me against the bricks, my shirt balled in his fist. The answer is four. Want to be number five? Why not? I stare at him, eyes watering. I can't do this. Yes, you can. He lets me go. Besides, you're in now. Walk away, and she'll find you. Maybe it's for the better. My eyes follow a nearby jaywalker. Can she make me? What? Can she make me like her? I guess, but what's the point? He reaches into a pocket, takes out two cigars, and hands them to me, along with a clipper. The labels say, Habana, Cuba. Cut the rounded ends. As I do this, his left hand dips again into his pocket. Out comes a vintage Zippo, which he uses to light mine first. I was your age when I started working for her. After lighting his, he exhales a cloud of smoke above his head. I won't sugarcoat it. I have no family, no friends, and lots of bad memories. But it's almost over. I did 35 years. You might get away with 30. I cough. You make it sound like prison. More a tour of duty. I pick a tobacco shred off my lower lip. When? How do you feed her? Daniel inhales deeply and exhales over his shoulder. I'll explain everything tomorrow. So there will be a tomorrow, huh? Long as you show up. I take another puff and feel myself getting used to the smoke, which is earthy and smooth. I relax and let it sink deep inside before blowing it out. Where does she go? What? After you feed her, where does she go? Daniel looks at me for a few seconds. Why do you care? Look, I'll be pissed if I'm busting my ass to keep her supply intact and she's out there grabbing a snack just because it feels good or whatever. He looks away as he takes another puff. 
You wondered about that, haven't you? Daniel takes the cigar out of his mouth and inspects the glowing tip. I suppose she just hangs out with the others. How many others are there? I have no idea. She's a hunter. I could sense that right away. Why wouldn't she and the others kill some poor bastard just because it's fun? It is not fun. I exhale more smoke. That's the most human thing you said all evening. Is there hope for me? Here's what I know. Daniel pulls his hat over his eyes. As long as you work for one, you're not that poor bastard being hunted. I step forward, trying to glimpse his eyes. You've seen it, haven't you? Meet me here tomorrow, same time. Daniel turns and walks away. No, you don't, I start after him. I have more questions. Here's how this works. He turns, smoke obscuring his face. You can ask all you want, but you'll get no more answers. They are the answer. Back in my apartment, I need another shower. Taking off my suit, I feel something in the jacket. It's an envelope addressed to Mr. Wolford Perry. Opening it, I find this strange name under my photo on an Illinois driver's license, U.S. passport, and other documents, even a Michigan concealed carry permit. There's also a card, lightly perfumed. Dear Wolf, I like your style but man behind isn't for me. However, I'll get behind any man who keeps me in the red. See you tomorrow. F. Dan. Hello, Connie. I love that chapter. I I'm so glad you did. I um I felt really good about it when I wrote it first uh, and did the final draft, and I feel really good about it after recording it here today because I feel like, uh, you know, with Jesse's acting notes and you know with me doing take after take, I was began I began to uh, hear the characters and really get their voice again. Uh, this has been kind of a revelatory experience for me. I just see the words on the page. I don't usually read them aloud. So for me, I'm learning about the characters even more. I've read your work probably 10 times, mm. and I've been here in the studio listening to you record. I learn something new every single time, and it just takes me in many different directions. And I'm just going to focus on a few salient points okay. and see where it takes us in this little interview about the interview. Okay. All right. Eldridge Knot. Have you ever tied one? Have you ever had to wear one? I have never had to wear one. I have never tried to tie one. I needed a knot, a tie knot that was just different. Something that, because I think Fiona was kind of tweaking her um, pro- prospective employer, Wolf, a little bit with this one. What is that? And, and you know, she's kind of playing with it. Learn to tie an Eldridge knot. Mm-hmm. What potential employer asks you to do that? <laughs> you know? And if you've ever seen a picture, Google it right now. Uh, an Eldritch Knot is just like this weirdly complex, oddly interesting and architecturally interesting knot, mm-hmm. but it's nothing I would ever, no no normal person would learn to tie an Eldritch Knot. See, I wondered if you had to wear one for your wedding or as a groomsman or anything like that. No, never, never did. One. I just saw a picture of it and I said, 
that's the tie Fiona is going to ask him to attempt to, to uh, well, that she wants him to wear what, for the interview. It's a great detail. I didn't know what an Eldridge knot was, so I Googled it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's beautiful. All the layers. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I love her instructions to him for the interview. Borrow a suit. Shine your shoes. Wear this knot. It's really interesting, which reminds me, mm-hmm. you've had the same career for 20 years, so you have not been on interviews this is true. But you did probably go on at least one or two interviews in your teens or when you were in college. Right. Um, certainly teens when I got my first job and then uh, before radio. And then, yeah, um, as I uh, tried to get a job in radio. Okay. Yeah. When you first, what was your first job? I was a, my first job was as an usher and props guy at Marriott Lincolnshire Theater. I love it. All right. Tell me about the interview, what you can remember of that interview process. Did they ask you anything just ridiculous? Did they treat you with respect? Uh, it was a ha- respectful, uh, polite interview. Mm-hmm. Um, they just wanted to know about me, my work history. They wanted to get a sense. Here's what it is. They really wanted to just get me to talk, reveal something about myself, <laughs> so that they would get a sense of, okay, he sounds reliable, or mm, something there, you know, I'm not sure. That's what I think the people who were interviewing me for those other jobs were trying to, they were trying to suss me out a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. uh, which begs the question, did you ever go on an interview and not get the job? Yes. Let's hear it. I actually interviewed twice for the job at, what, at the radio station that eventually became WNIJ. Okay. At the time, it was 1990, it was one radio station. And I uh, answered an ad in the Northern Star for a classical music announcer position. Nice. Because they had classical music during the middle of the day. And I didn't get the job. I think I got Paderewski wrong. Uh, how do you how do you say Paderewski? And I thought Paderewski, <laughs> and I just couldn't get it. So, mm-hmm. but they called me back and said we have a Tuesday night jazz host opportunity for you. Would you consider that? I said, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker. I got it right. And you love jazz. And I do. And you're also a percussionist, aren't you? I used to play the drums, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Drummers are notorious for being a little bit... Unhinged? Yes. Yeah. Unhinged. Yeah, and I was. Okay, let's hear about that time. Um, I was in various bands in high school and college. Mm-hmm. A Grateful Dead cover band. Oh, my God. <laughs> we played at Otto's. Okay. It was a bunch of English majors, history majors. Mm-hmm. That was history at the time. Uh, I was in a metal band. Yes, you were. Called okay. The Inevitable. Um, we had some gothic singer come in uh, just to help us record this album. We actually recorded an, uh, an album at Acme Studios in Chicago. We're going to need to hear that album. Uh, it's terrible. We, uh, even but more. it was we really well mixed. <laughs> <laughs> it was well produced, but yeah, the musicality was just terrible. You got to let uh, us hear it. We got to sample some of that okay. in this podcast. Sure, sure. I think I have it on cassette. And then I was in a, you know, blues and jazz bands. Mm-hmm. You know, I played everything. Okay. What is your favorite music now? I I find myself listening to to jazz most of the time and classical. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, me too. Um, I never thought about this, but what are they listening to at Fiona's Castle? 
I deliberately have no music in the in the dialogue. That is, nobody's referring to music or anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it's quiet. Love it. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that it's quiet all around them. It's quiet. I think Daniel wants to to work, just focus on the work, the business end. Fiona, you know, I don't think she likes distractions. You know, or it. it I don't know about Fiona. What does she like music or not? A future story actually does bring music into it. Interesting. We bring in the music of Antonio Vivaldi. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Is it pertaining to the seasons or? Uh, yeah, all four. Oh, see, this is so interesting because you bring us outside and you don't beat us over the head with leaves right. and ants and birds. But we know <laughs> the season. We know there's a solstice. Right. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. It's the dead of Venice. And that's a story where music actually has a very big part of it. So I'll, we could talk about that another time when that mm-hmm. story finally publishes. Okay, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Fiona just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why does she wear perfume? I think she's old enough where she's constantly decaying or trying to stave off decay. So that's why she, you know, she needs that 10 pints of blood every night mm-hmm. just to look normal, which is beautiful. She's a very beautiful woman. But if she doesn't get that 10 pints, she starts to, you know, her skin starts to wrinkle, starts to smell a little, mm-hmm. and her hair falls out. And she gets, and um, so really what she's doing is staving off, not only is she drinking blood to survive, mm-hmm. but that survival is, you could see it on her face. She's pretty much wearing the state of being, you know, for her. Um, did I get enough nutrition today? Yeah. And you can see it and smell it if you didn't. Yeah, that's really an interesting detail that I love about Fiona is that she can't hide what she is going through. Right. Uh, much like uh, my friend's a diabetic, when her blood sugar dips, it's pretty obvious, everybody knows, and she gets a little cranky mm-hmm. and she gets a little paler. And I'm not saying Fiona's a diabetic, but it's interesting to see people go through their process when they need to survive, when they need something to survive, and it's right there in front of you. And I like that you bring that to us, to the readers. I'm glad that worked. Oh, definitely does. Okay, I read this 10 times, I've listened, and I still am not sure what happens to Daniel's right arm. I'm not sure what what happened to Daniel's right arm, but I had to give him a limitation. Yeah. Um, Because... He has to have a reason, A, to hire somebody on. Mm-hmm. And retirement just doesn't seem enough in my mind. You know, yes, he wants to retire, and he needs a replacement for when he retires. But that's not, as Daniel begins to, you know, go through these stories, he, he, he realizes it's not an easy process, retiring, leaving Fiona. He's not going to leave her unless she is in good care. Mm-hmm. And right now, with his having, you know, missing a right arm, he does have some things he could still bring to the game. Um, you know, selling stocks and whatever. He has all that knowledge. Mm-hmm. He can keep them financially stable so they could buy more blood. Mm-hmm. But his fi- he's physically limited. Yeah. And so they bring in this younger person, Wolf, this college student or a guy who left college mm-hmm. to take this job. And so, you know, he, he has, you know, two hands, two feet. He can, he can um, function better in some areas than Daniel can. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sets the stage for um, two people taking care of Fiona for a while, yeah, but in very different roles. Uh, it's interesting. When a person is very sick, um, they need a team. It can't just be one person taking care of that person. It has to be a team. Mm-hmm. And I really get a sense of that happening in this chapter. When we get to Solstice, we'll talk a little bit more about how they truly are working more together. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just wanted to say I'm noticing the bonds really forming. Oh, good. And good. the need for each other. 
is really there? Um, Edward Snowden. Yeah, I. There's one of the, in every story I leave like a little clue about where are we in time approximately, mm-hmm. just because we are moving back in time, yes. back and forth. When you're dealing with a creature who's 250 years old, um, then you have to have a sense of uh, of of the span of her life, mm-hmm. of her existence. So the people who are with her at a particular time, I, I felt like I needed to locate them. You know, when one of the ways I did that was with uh, events happening in, in politically, something you might hear on uh, NPR or in the newspaper or on CNN, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so that just automatically puts you in a in a in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the time with them. Does Wolfie have a little bit of Snowden in him? The, okay, so when, what we have with Snowden is a person who had a tremendous amount of knowledge, was uh, presumably very good at spying on people, mm-hmm. uh, eavesdropping, and knew all the tricks of the trade. Mm-hmm. This is the really key thing of a secret organization. Yes. And so we have Wolf, who is similar in that regard, I suppose. He, he could easily gut the organization. I was wondering if this was a little bit of, and I don't want to spoiler, but a, a foreshadow. And I'm glad we're talking about this because I have been thinking about this. How loyal will Wolf be to Fiona? Mm-hmm. As loyal as Daniel is, and Daniel is very loyal to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we see in the first story, he, he killed for her. Oh, yeah. Uh, you right know, away. He became the monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for, you know. um, so what happens with Wolf? Can we depend on Wolf's loyalty going forward? And that's an important question that I think I'm going to have to address, and I want to address it. I want to have that conversation on the page. Okay. Um, but I'm not there yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, at one point, Wolford, and I keep calling him Wolfie, and I apologize. Wolfie's fine. Okay. <laughs> he um, says, is it fun to go out and kill? And Daniel said, none of this is fun. Right. And that word fun is almost sinful where I come from. Nothing is ever supposed to be fun. Where do you come from? I don't. Um, well, I guess I learned that in Rockford when I was a teenager. Uh, that fun is not something that you should strive for, but to be serious and to be happy, that's the goal. Mm. So whenever I hear somebody say, do it for fun, or this is fun, it just makes me want to recoil. Right. What does the word fun do to you? Um, I, it's, you're right. I think I also have a similar um, bias mm-hmm. against toward the word. It's, I mean, we all want to have fun, I think, but yeah, are we allowed to? And for, I think Wolf still feels like, you know, he, he was in college. He's, you know, he, that is, he, we, he, we, he's basically plucked out of college, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, he's still in this kind of environment where, you know, he's still young and he's thinking, you know, I, 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 life is worth living. But if I could back up a second, he, he speaks to Daniel, uh, this line that you bring up, it is not fun. Uh, he, and so he asks Daniel, where does she go at night? How do you know she's not just going out there killing some poor bastard, hunting some poor bastard because it's fun? And I think that's a really important... Is Fiona having fun? Is it fun for her to go out and hunt? Is she doing that? Mm-hmm. Even though they're like giving her a, a supply of donated blood. Um, and so there's this open question about what it is like to be Fiona. Mm-hmm. Does she have fun? Does she go out? She goes out every night. Where? And so there's, I think fun becomes more of a mystery. What the hell is fun? <laughs> That's the kind of, as I was writing, it's like, yeah, what's it like to have fun? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to imagine that. 
Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. You did. Okay. You did. And I'm going to ask the listeners, mm -hmm. do you like to have fun? Let us know. What's fun for you? Or would you prefer being serious and happy? All right. I'm going to keep moving on. Mm -hmm. That interview is more of a seduction. This is the interview where uh, Wolf comes for the job interview with, yes. with Fiona? Yeah. I yeah. think so. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know if you've ever been in a situation where it feels like it's more of a seduction than being told what to do or what to expect. I've never been in the fortunate position of having <laughs> somebody want to seduce me during a job interview. <laughs> but it is, I will say this, I see what you're coming from. Mm -hmm. It is a seduction. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's easier to imagine it where the, piece, the person being interviewed, the person who wants the job, is trying to seduce the potential employer into hiring them. Mm -hmm. But here with Fiona, doing this essential, she's interviewing, she's sussing him out. Mm -hmm. Can I trust you? She's figuring him out. Take it, she's, she's going to take a chance on somebody who's going to, you know, essentially be responsible for her life. And to a certain extent, even though she's this extremely powerful creature, she is putting her care in somebody else's hands. Yep. And, you know, while she's sleeping, mm -hmm. she needs to know that this person's not going to destroy her, you know, mm -hmm. while, uh, during the daytime. And so she is kind of sussing him out. And there is a bit of seduction. You're right from her point of view. She's mm -hmm. playing with him. By playing with him, she watches how he reacts. Mm -hmm. And if he reacts the right way, maybe in a, in a way that shows he has a conscience or knows how to be scared, then I think that's interesting to her. And she, she, she will kind of make a decision based on his reaction. Yeah, I see that. Mm -hmm. um, I would like you to ask the readers some questions. What would you like them to think about? Not readers, listeners. Oh, well, listeners. Uh, hopefully readers, too. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. They might pick up the stories. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. Listeners know. now, what would you like them to give feedback about for this podcast? Oh, for the podcast? Yes. I would love to hear from their point of view how useful this discussion is and my reading uh, is. Are they, are they uh, you know, are you the listener finding you know, this, this, uh, this content that we're creating interesting? Are you able to take it with you? Are you, uh, you know, do you listen to these podcasts while you're doing chores, while you're driving, uh, you know, before you go to bed? You know, where and how do you listen to these? Yeah, we want to know where and how you podcast. All right, last question. How are you? I'm good. You're good. I should say well if I wanted to be grammatically correct, yeah. but I like saying I'm good. All right, there's a Cuban cigar in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Do you smoke? I have smoked Cuban cigars. Um, oh, I shouldn't say that. It's probably illegal. No, I can't tell oh. you where I got them from. <laughs> I can't tell you where I got them from. And when it happened, I think the statute of limitations has run out. Mm -hmm. uh, that Yeah, I, uh, somebody supplied me with some Cuban cigars one time. Okay. And I smoked them. How does it make you feel to smoke a cigar? Well, I think it was part of the experience of smoking a rare cigar that you're not supposed to have. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and so that experience. But you know what? It was... And I'd heard about, you know, how the, you know, the way these are made and a little bit about that and, um, you know, the quality. And I was able to kind of imagine, you know, somebody making this, rolling this cigar. Um, and um, I liked the, I do tend to, to gravitate toward more earthy flavors, mm -hmm. like the wines I like tend mm -hmm. to be a little less fruity and more earthy. So I was kind of prepared uh, for an earthy kind of tobacco, smoky kind of 
experience. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. I mean, it was smooth. It, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't make me cough too much. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a cigar in the interview. And the next chapter is Solstice, which takes place in 1997, which you may or may not remember features a certain cigar with a certain president. But more on that later. But right now, I just want to say thank you for sharing this chapter, sharing this interview, sharing your expertise with us. We really enjoy it and appreciate it so much. Well, thank you, Connie. Uh, it was It's great to be here. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay. Bye. Can't wait. The interview originally appeared online at Aphelion Webzine. You're listening to music from The Inevitable, which was digitized from a cassette for this podcast. Guilty Pleasures podcast was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, The Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, Freeman AV, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coons. Thank you for listening. Now go write.